Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe. And this week, we get the chance to speak with Margaret Austin. Now, I felt as I was talking with Margaret that here was somebody who had lived several lifetimes in one. She was born in 1933, so it's a great chance to talk with someone who has memories of World War II. And then I just enjoyed hearing her life story and what led her to become a politician. She served as a member of parliament from 1984 to 1996. And then we talk a lot about what she's done since then as well and what it is that motivates her. And I honestly felt in talking to her that this was someone who is much more active and involved in various things than many people I know who are decades and decades younger than she is. And it was really inspiring. Here's a little excerpt from our conversation to give you a taste of what we talked about. Prof would get up and he would say, I want this hut cleaned to my perfection. The girls will follow me. And off we would head across a paddock full of bulls and up the hill, regardless of the weather in the swirling mists. And he would sit the four girls down when he thought we'd gone far enough and we would get a lecture. And the substance of that lecture was, I accept that you will be the mothers of the next generation, but do not forget that I'm educating you to contribute to this country. Wow. 1952. That's not bad, is it? Yeah, that's amazing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm. If you enjoy this conversation, then you might want to check out the more than 200 other episodes in the back catalog. And there's plenty more information at theseeds.nz. What I'm trying to do with Seeds is build up a database of stories of inspiring people. Now let's get into this interview with Margaret. All right. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Margaret Austin to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Um, I'm really excited about this interview, and and thank you for welcoming me into your home. I love looking around and seeing all these photos around the room. This room is full of my memories. I I can tell. And that's one of the things that uh, is exciting me about this conversation, because I love to talk with people who've had interesting journeys. And when I look back at your life, um, I can already tell that been involved in many, many different things. So our problem is going to be that we could talk for hours and hours. To edit me out, yes. (laughs) I already know. Um, And the other thing is that we were at an event last week, um, which was put on by the Christchurch Foundation, and there would have been 70 or 80 people. Mm. um, And the person got up, Humphrey stood up, and the first person that he said, I want to acknowledge, was you. And that kind of stuck out to me, you know, the, the recognition of the contribution that you've made here within Christchurch, but also in all of your endeavors. So um, I think it's, this will be a really excellent chance to reflect on your life and some of the mm-hmm. things that you've been involved in. Mm-hmm. Good. So what we'll do now is jump into our time machine and go back in time. Can you describe for us what it was like for you growing up? And I'm thinking some of the first memories, like when you were maybe four or five years old, where were you living and what was it like? I want to begin by simply indicating to you that I've had so many privileges. And this daughter of a railway man looks back on a life that has been dominated by influences, but also I credit a great deal of what I am 
to the education system of New Zealand. Mm. There is no doubt whatever in my mind that my privileges are the result of a New Zealand education. Mm. You see, my parents were peripatetic. Uh, I was born in Dunedin. My father was promoted station master at Edendale shortly after. I started school in Dunedin. And my one memory of Edendale was midwinter. Overnight, there had been a snowstorm which had iced over and we had to pass a truck that had fallen over or come to grief just outside the school gate and here were these big fellas from the senior part of the school making us little ones walk around this truck in the ice and of course not one of us made it we all fell over (laughs) (laughs) But then five years in Waimati, with great freedom during the war years, great freedom. We used to play in Snake's Gully, Hmm. where my mother ran two cows and milked them all through the the war years. My job was to separate the milk from the cream and to churn the butter on Saturday morning. Wow. Hmm. That's amazing. And what what were were some of your first memories? Would they have been from the... What, mid-1930s or...? 1938 to 43 was Waimati. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was beginning of the war with relations passing through and staying the night on the way to uh, Trentham or to uh, military camps. Mm. It was salutary. And then, as a 10-year-old, Dad got promotion again and we shifted to Milton. But I look back on... The freedom of growing up in that time where I'm absolutely certain that parenting wasn't a drama like it is now. (laughs) Oh, there were all sorts of experiences along along the way. Mm -hmm. Some of the tales that I could tell would put health and safety people into orbit these days. (laughs) (laughs) So it was quite an active childhood, it sounds like. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I recall as an eight-year-old, knowing that my mother had inherited her father's piano, begging to be able to learn the piano, and being aware also that that was going to put great pressure on the family finances to give me music lessons, Mm. because I was the eldest of five girls. Wow. And what do you remember of the war years themselves? Being conscious of casualties, of being aware that my parents were getting messages about people who'd been wounded or who had died. Mm. I suppose the closest memory I've got now is of VE Day. When I By then, I was at school in Dunedin, and I'd like to tell you about that. I'd love to hear. Uh, these Lancaster bombers flying over Dunedin, we were terrified absolutely terror because they came in so low and the noise was dreadful we actually practiced drill lying on the on the playing fields <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing that i recall was the care with which we were instilled with safety you wouldn't dream of not having your curtains pulled at night to make sure there was no light coming through. Mm. You were aware of men on the streets checking that everybody was in blackout. Mm. Uh, And that sort of lives with you. 
So those would be some of your first memories then, it sounds like, the, is the war years. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And growing up then in terms of the, your schooling and things, you mentioned how important that had been. Yes. Was there an area that you enjoyed more than others when you look back? Oh, yes. I was very, very fortunate when my father and mother shifted to Balclutha mm-hmm. that St. Dominic's in Dunedin granted me a scholarship to go to boarding school in Standard 5, Year 7 as it is now. Mm. And those, I had four years there, and they were incredibly important. The sisters at St. Dominic's were professional educators. The most important room in the school was the library. And if they said to us once a week, that would be an understatement. Our job in life is to prepare you for that grey building down the hill, and of course that was the University of Otago. Hmm. And when you think back now, that was the late 40s, Hmm. yes, late 40s, 45 to 49 I was there, they were way, way ahead of their time. Hmm. But there were girls who were into creative dancing. If you had any sort of voice at all, you weren't given a choice, you went into public speaking. If you did a piano examination or a music examination and did well, no questions asked. You did a recital at assembly. Hmm. We were doing oratorio where each each class in the school had a different part to play. Mm-hmm. And then we put it all together when we'd rehearsed. Hmm. It was extraordinary. And the science teacher got me started, of course. <laughs> but the head teacher, Sister Mary Therese, was head of that school at the age of 34. She had a master's degree in Latin and mathematics, Mm. and she was a splendid teacher and Mm. a real uh, inspiration. Mm. So do you think it was her her influence or her mindset that that infiltrated and spread through the school? No, it was the scholarship. It was the scholarship that was imbued into us. Mm. And I, I readily concede that maybe it didn't appeal to everybody, but it certainly appealed to me. Mm. That's mm. wonderful. Mm. And you mentioned that the, the sisters were talking about university as this is what we're preparing That's you exactly for. That's exactly right. What would have been your parents' attitude to university and things? Looking back now, I think I can say without hesitation that because both my parents were obliged to leave school at the age of 12, which was the school leaving age, and go to work, Mm. that they were highly intelligent underachievers. Hmm. So if they had been given that opportunity or that that potential was there, maybe. Yes. It's amazing to me, as just as already as we're talking, to think about the different eras that that this conversation is already touching Mm. on, that it would have been commonplace for a for a 12-year-old to go off to work, you know, that, yes, that that's, that's right. only a few generations removed. Mm, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So as you come through and you're studying in high school, did you have a particular area that you knew you wanted to study at university? or? No, I think I fell into it. I went to university after Form 6, year mm-hmm. 12, and went straight into both botany and zoology. And there again, we were so privileged to have the professors and teachers that we had, really. And the one that comes to mind immediately is Professor Percival. Lots of 
returned servicemen, of course, by the time you got to university in 1951. Mm. <laughs> and the stories they told us on field trips would make your hair, hair stand on end, yeah. like, like dining with King Farouk and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, off we would go to Menzies Bay over on Banks Peninsula for field trips once we got into uh, stage two. Mm-hmm. And I was privileged again, I readily concede. Prof Percival employed me as the demonstrator in the night lab, which is where the returned services, servicemen would do their lab work from, say, six until ten, twi- twice a week, well, six until nine, twice a week. Mm. And I learned so much as a demonstrator to him as a, a wonderful teacher. But mm. he would put us into the university truck and he would be driving and 18 of us would be packed into the back of the truck under a canopy where the seats were bales of straw. <laughs> and off we'd go over to the Shearer's Foray at, at Menzies Bay. Wow. We'd get there and he would say... There's enough bunks in the foray for the boys, of whom there were 14. I've brought a tent for the girls. Here it is. Get it up. (laughs) But the field work was just inspirational. But then on a Thursday morning, and I experienced this three or four times, Prof would get up and he would say, I want this hut cleaned to my perfection. The girls will follow me. And off we would head across a paddock full of bulls and up the hill, regardless of the weather in the swirling mists. And he would sit the four girls down when he thought we'd gone far enough. And we would get a lecture. And the substance of that lecture was, I accept that you will be the mothers of the next generation, but do not forget that I'm educating you to contribute to this country. Wow. 1952, that's oh, not bad, is it? Yeah, that's amazing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm. yeah. But he, he wasn't the only one who was directing our attention mm. uh, to scholarship, to committing ourselves to contributing. Mm. One of the other things he did when we'd go over to these field trips, there would be two boxes of books come out of the truck. One would be the textbooks that we would need for the field trips, some of which you'll still see down right. there. Yep. <laughs> uh, oh, and the um, flora of New Zealand up on its own shelf. Mm-hmm. Oh, the other box was a box of literature that he expected us to browse into and read some of them during the course of the year. Mm. And it would be history, philosophy, no novels, you know. Literature. Yeah. <laughs> so he had quite a, a quite a open mindset at that era. Oh, absolutely. Do, do mm. you know what would have shaped him or why he would have been that way? He was Did a you? Yorkshireman. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And he was very, very proud of the fact that as a Yorkshireman and professor of zoology, he had a BSc. You set your sights on what you can do and get on with it. Hmm. And that encouragement, I guess, at an early age, then maybe planted the seed for you later in life to never forget that. Something I've just recalled also, and that is, go back to 1947 at St. Dominic's, and my music teacher had been given tickets 
for the very first concert of the what then, what eventually became the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra hmm. in the town hall in Dunedin. Now, she couldn't go because the Dominicans were in closed order. So a group of us were sent down. I'm very proud to be able to say I've been a subscriber and attender of the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra for over 70 years. Wow, that's quite a legacy. <laughs> <laughs> Which they acknowledge, of course. Yeah, that's mm. wonderful. Mm. Yeah. At that time, was that some of your first introductions to the arts? Was that a, was that a big oh, part you, of your life at that well, point? Well, I loved or? the piano, just right. loved playing the piano. And, but yes, the orchestra was the, the second introduction to yeah. very important. Yeah. And in terms of your study then in the early 1950s, was that at Canterbury University? Yes. Or? Yeah. yes. And what made you come to Canterbury rather than Otago? Oh, because the parents had shifted. And that's wow. a story in itself of what it was like. My father, regretfully, well, he got TB oh. and had to retire early. And my mother was allowed to stay in the station house which was available to the station master in Balclutha for six months, but she had then to find uh, some place to live. And she would go to Dunedin once a week, once a fortnight, to the housing corporation to beg for somewhere to live. Mm. Almost at the end of the six months, she got a call to say, there is a house in Christchurch which is available for you it's the only one we've got, take it or leave it. And she did. And we shifted to mm. Christchurch. Wow. It was a different time. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And in terms of your study then, was there a particular um, specialty that you were looking at? I'm looking here in your library and there's lots of outdoor focus. And, and Oh, yes, that's true. But I loved the field trips, both mm. in botany and zoology. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'd set my heart on teaching. Right. Mm. When did that when did that come to you? When did you decide that? Oh, I couldn't answer that, I don't think. <laughs> mm. yeah. uh, it sounds like teachers had been a big part of your life. Yes. Like they, they'd had a great influence, so I can imagine it would be a path that would be appealing to you. Yes, that's mm. right. And uh, in 1954, the Teachers College had just opened up in Christchurch for graduate students. Mm. They weren't taking science graduates who had to go to, to Auckland. Mm. But I put in a plea that I was needed at home uh, because by then my father had come home from the sanatorium and uh, I was allowed to, to go to the teacher's college here. Mm. But I was very, very fortunate mm. because one of the biology teachers at Christchurch Girls High School was offered a fellowship to go to Duke University in the US to do a PhD. And they were searching for somebody to come over. And so uh, I was offered, uh, instead of going on section, I was offered the teaching position at, uh, at Girls High School in the middle of my teacher's college year. Wow. Oh, that's very good timing. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Mm. And just before we talk about your early career and, and what you were doing, can you paint a picture for us? Because many of those listening um, were obviously not around in the 1940s and 50s. Mm. What was New Zealand like at that time? How would you describe it? I believe that our childhood had freedoms that were perhaps 
uh, w- wouldn't wouldn't be acceptable today. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we wanted to go swimming, well, then you went swimming. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to go for a hike, well, you went for a hike. Our Sunday afternoon uh, excursion was Dad pulling the levers on a, a pulley and off we'd go on the railway lines way up into the uh, Arno Valley from Waimati. Hmm. Uh, and I think my overwhelming memories are of a childhood of freedom. By the same token, I can also say now, having uh, been involved in a great many excursions for various activities overseas, I have never, ever got on an aircraft to come home, no matter where from, without saying to myself, well, Margaret, you're going home to real freedom. Hmm. Because the constraints on people's lives in other parts of the world Hmm. make us realise just how privileged we are. Hmm. It's too easy to forget, isn't it, when you Mm -hmm. look at what's easily accessible, particularly from here in Christchurch. It's, yes. It's quite amazing, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And so it, take us through then your early career and working as a teacher. Did you did you enjoy doing that? Was it what you thought it would be? Oh, yes. Yes, I did. Uh, loved the field trips, loved the classroom, loved doing the lab work with, with the girls. Uh, that was at my first appointment was at, was at girls' high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Well, then family. <laughs> One got married. <laughs> um, and that, that's, that's uh, another vignette, I suppose. Uh, Jack and I had a very relaxed and easy relationship, but he knew before the wedding ceremony there was no way Margaret was going to devote herself to being domesticated. Right. <laughs> Uh, and I did manage um, two three-year stints, sort of three years apart, <laughs> uh, when the children were little. But I also uh, worked part-time during mm. uh, those years mm. uh, and made sure that my children were well looked after. Mm-hmm. They were well looked after by people that came into the home to do so. Yeah. But it was also a time in the 50s one was very conscious of housing developments. If I said to you, we won a housing corporation house in Harewood Road. There were five of them built for sale. They were balloted Hmm. and our name uh, came up Hmm. on on one of them. And and that was our first home. You were conscious of the expectations of of women to be uh, homed, dwellers, mm, mm. but I was also very conscious that some of the women around me as neighbours were suffering from suburban neurosis, having been in the workforce during the war years, but then being expected to be domesticated ladies. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when we went to Harewood Road in 1955, we had the outhouse. There was no sewer in Harewood Road. Right. Hmm. <laughs> That's why I love doing the podcast, because yeah. it's so interesting to hear the real-life stories from people like mm. that. But mm. but I presume at that point, that was just commonly accepted. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. 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 Well, Because you'd grown up churning the butter. <laughs> That's and, right, you know, and cutting the papers for the toilet paper. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> for the outhouses. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I wasn't the only one doing that. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So um, talk us through then the, the, I guess, the next few years and, and what did that involve? You've got young children, but you're also mm. working. Well, the biological sciences were were so much a part of my life and also of the family. And in addition to uh, working uh, part-time when they were little and then going back full-time, I went back full-time teaching in 1966, back back to to girls' high school. Mm -hmm. But uh, our holidays were always out tramping, Mm -hmm. uh, botanizing, mind you, the own, I did my level best to get them activated with the native flora. And the only plant that any one of them can name is Wallenbergia albumarginata, the little bluebell that's about, what, never grows more than about 10 centimetres high. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that, it was good fun. It and was a, Lots a, of field trips. Yeah, childhood spent outdoors, it yes. sounds like, again. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So talk us through um, some of the some of the decades that followed, and then the decision to get involved in politics. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? Well, in in the sixties and early seventies, curriculum development was becoming uh, an essential exercise, and those of us that were and I, by that time I was head of science at Christchurch Girls High School, and. Uh, Curriculum development in the, the both the sciences for general science and also in the biological sciences was uh, taking off. I had a teaching fellowship at the teachers' college in nineteen no at the university in nineteen seventy, mm-hmm. uh, and at that time we had just comp- written the uh, form six and form seven biology curriculum. Uh, simply by going up, the groups of us would, would go to uh, Lopdell House in Titarangi near, near Auckland. Uh, and they were highly, highly professional. And uh, in 1970, having got the curriculum through the University Grants Committee, I was asked if I would write a lab manual for Form 7, which is as it was then, year 13. Mm-hmm. And the teaching fellowship at the university gave me the opportunity to have the time to be able to do that. And so I interacted with uh, academic staff uh, in the biological sciences here and also spent one day a week out at Lincoln with the microbiologists, the biochemists, uh, and the geneticists out there. And they were enormously helpful in giving me access to lab work uh, and the field uh, to mm. be able to put together appropriate exercises for, uh, for Form 7 students. In fact, I've still still got the, uh, the lab manual that I wrote, and I'm told there are some people around the country that are still, might be still using it. <laughs> um, but uh, that was that was very, very special to have the privilege of being able to do that. And uh, you see, in one of the exercises, putting the curriculum together, uh, my notion of including a fairly significant unit on microbiology had been defeated. <laughs> So when I got the lab manual, 
exercise, I thought, right, I know what I'm going to do. <laughs> All the genetics work was based on principles of um, applying microbiology to the lab work to um, uh, have exercises there which illustrated principles of genetics uh, through microbiology. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you enjoyed that, I that enjoyed, process of, uh, yes, of preparing it. Yes, I did. It. I did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Going from that point in, in early 1970s, um, what led you to sort of have a different perspective on politics and whether that would be something that you would want to contribute oh, to? Oh, well, you see, by 1975, we were subjected to one prime minister called Robert Muldoon. And you became aware as an adult that the constraints and managed economy, you couldn't buy anything without overseas funds. Mm. We had carless days and uh, all sorts of rigmarole. Let me tell you a story. Mm. We had, Jack had his first leave from the university in 1956. Sorry, 56. And we went to the chemistry labs at the University of Wales in Aberystwyth. It was a fantastic experience. We got to London and the Earl's Court Motor Show was on mm -hmm. and we bought all we could afford, which was a Vauxhall Wyvern. Because we, were, we had to run that Vauxhall, Vauxhall Wyvern for 366 days and then take it back to Vauxhall Motors in order to avoid paying British purchase tax. And then we had to send it home to New Zealand in order to avoid paying New Zealand import duties. Hmm. Well, that's all right. We got back home in December of 57, and Jack thought, well, now we've got this new car. Maybe it would be a good idea to put our names down now for a car. So off he went into the farmer's garage in Cashel Street to put his name down for a new car. Guess when we were offered a new car? From December 1957. Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> September 1969. Wow. Twelve years later. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. But you see, that were the, they were the constraints of a managed, commandeered economy. Right. So, so you saw the direct impact of political decisions. Yes. And then, you see, I was very, very privileged. By then, I was senior mistress at Rickerton High School. And that's what we were called in those days. If you were the senior woman, you were the senior mistress. They're now deputy principals. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so when I meet up with former Rickerton High School students who always called me Mrs. A, mm. quite often they'll say to me, what was your job at Rickerton? <laughs> and I would say, I was the headmaster's senior mistress. <laughs> yes, yes, you wouldn't dare do that these yeah. days. <laughs> but <laughs> the I, I was very, very privileged. Because I'd been involved in curriculum development mm. and also in uh, teacher professional development for teachers in the sciences, mm. I was offered a Commonwealth Fellowship which would allow me to go to London to the Institute of Education for the academic year 8081. Mm. Now, there's a precursor to that. Uh, with three adolescent children, uh, 
and Jack was at the university and they were able to take a year's leave, sabbatical leave, every seven years. And I had said to Jack, look, I'm not carting children around the world. You go on your leave, that's fine. I'll keep the home fires burning. Hmm. And that was fine. So when I was offered the Commonwealth Fellowship for 19... the 80-81 academic year, his reaction was, don't hesitate, off you go. I will look after your mother, who was living with us by then. Right. (laughs) And so off I went for the year. Hmm. And uh, my thesis was the structure of the curriculum. Hmm. And uh, that experience in London was quite unique because it allowed you to research and to look at the literature, become familiar with it, and come to the to some, clusion, some conclusions. And for what it's worth, my definition of compulsory education is, it is the initiation of the young into those areas of knowledge which cannot be left to chance, so that when they get to the end of compulsory schooling, they have identified their aptitudes and interests and can make decisions accordingly. Mm-hmm. That was very important. But at the same time, I was only allowed to have 1200 New Zealand dollars a month to live on in London. <laughs> uh, and Margaret Thatcher's uh, tertiary education or education policies were having a real effect on the tertiary system in Britain Hmm. and uh, with dramatic cuts and the institute was a highly politicised outfit Hmm. and invariably you were in you because you were had access to the staff room you engaged with people and interacted with them uh, and I had some other friends also, books whose books are up there, mm-hmm. uh, one of whom was a professor of educational inquiry at University of Aston in Birmingham. And he, I was with the family one weekend, and Richard was called to meet with the Vice-Chancellor on a Saturday morning. Mm. Now, that's sort of pretty serious. And... When he got back to the family later that day, he announced that the Vice-Chancellor had decided that rather than spread the cuts over the whole university, he was going to dispense with Richard's faculty, which was the education inquiry. And Richard had 20 PhD students Hmm. whom he had to find new homes for. Now, that's pretty, pretty ghastly. Hmm. Mm. And But he went on and he had a great uh, future afterwards. Mm. But simultaneously with this going on, what became the... They became the, the Liberals, mm-hmm. the Liberal Democrats. Uh, they broke away from Labour and the Conservatives and formed a new party. And uh, BBC4 was reporting on their activities every every day. And in the staff room, we were listening to the interviews, and I kept thinking, they're speaking the language I want to hear. 
Hmm. So when I came home, I thought, well, I better join the Labour Party and, and become a bit more active. Hmm. And then, so it was actually the experience in London that made you think, I want to come back and and get involved. Partly that, and yeah. partly the Muldoon regime, which mm. was you know so limiting, right? So limiting. Yeah. Uh, but the two together, yeah, because they were more or less doing the same thing, weren't they? Mm. <laughs> Control is mm. what it was called. Uh, that led me into. Uh, and I just thought I'd become a bit more active and yeah. you know, have, have my say. Yeah. But uh, Mick Connolly, in those, in those days, uh, you were obliged to retire at 70. Hmm. So Mick Connolly, having turned 70 in, in 1983, announced that he was stepping down. And, of course, then replacement candidate. Uh, and it took me a year to agree to allowing my name to go forward hmm. because I still sort of had hankerings after being a school principal. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, eventually got round to the, the candidates' uh, selection meeting and there were nine of us uh, fronted up. Mm -hmm. And to my uh, pleasure as well as astonishment, I was the one that was selected to contest the 84 election. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. And and looking back, what are your memories of those first days as a politician and, and getting involved? Because you'd had your own career in terms of education and, and working with young people and things. And then it's quite a shift to being in politics. Yes. But I also had acquired uh, some characteristics. Mm -hmm. First of all, I didn't need to go to Wellington and into politics to make a name for myself. I already had one in education. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I wasn't interested in being a political animal. And I think there's a lot of people, contemporaries of mine, who would say that that was the attitude that, that came through. Mm. And my, uh, per I was only interested in being engaged in informed, evidence-based decisions mm. uh, with, with emphasis on the informed, but also a realisation that we had to break out of that controlled economy that we had had to endure in this country. And I am not prepared under any circumstance. I accept that there have been unintended consequences, but... I'm not prepared to apologise for any of the decisions uh, that were made between 84 and, and 1990 mm -hmm. in freeing up this economy, but in putting also into place the constraints and regulations which made sure that people knew what they could do and what they couldn't do. Mm. Now, I said that there have been some unintended consequences and it pains me that there's inequality in this country. Mm. Uh, I remember in the very early days doing a radio interview with Sharon Crosby and she looked at me across the microphone <laughs> <laughs> and said, why the Labour Party, Margaret? And I remember clearly my answer. Where else would you go if you've got a social conscience? And I still believe that. Mm. 
And it sounds like your motivations for getting involved weren't about the the name and the the titles. No. It was actually to come in and effect change. Mm, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So reflecting back on your time there. I, I stepped down in in 1996 mm-hmm. uh, after the, when M, at the first MMP election. Mm-hmm. And that's a story in itself. Mm-hmm. Because... Uh, in the lead-up to uh, MMP, the boundaries for the 60 electorates all had to be redrawn on the basis of population distribution. Mm-hmm. And Jack got the job of doing Christchurch. <laughs> <laughs> and one Friday afternoon, I got home, and he sat me down and he said, there is no alternative but that I have to divide the missus in two. <laughs> and the boundary for Wigram mm-hmm. and Islam had to go down Yaldhurst Road. Right. So half of me went into Wigram and half of me went into into Islam. I see. And it so was the... it was absolutely logical. I mean, <laughs> it, you you couldn't argue with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But redrawing those lines, yes, yes, had a big impact. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And through that time in politics, like reflecting on it, did were you able to do what you'd hoped you would be able to when you when you went in? Oh, well, you shouldn't go into politics thinking that you've got an agenda and you're going to achieve that agenda. Mm. You go into politics to contribute to good decision making or to sorry, to informed decision making. Mm. And I'd like to think that that was my reputation. After the 87 election, I uh, was elected senior whip, and that's sort of keeping the show on the road. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that was a, a, a fearsome job because mm. your responsibility is to the prime minister to make sure that everybody is in their place mm. uh, when they're supposed to be. Mm. And uh, uh, I've said to uh, quite a few people... There's only two attributes needed for a backbencher. One is obedience, and the second is punctuality. (laughs) (laughs) And do your homework, of course. Yeah. Do your homework. But then, uh, I mean, there were troubles in 88 uh, and 89, and then I was elected to cabinet Mm -hmm. in in 89. Mm -hmm. And... uh, was Minister of Research, Science and Technology, Arts and Culture, mm-hmm. and uh, Internal Affairs. Mm. And that was very, very rewarding mm. to have responsibility and to work with <clears throat> the seniors in three ministries was just uh, extraordinarily rewarding. Mm. Well, do you have a, a highlight or a memory that, that illustrates that how rewarding it was? Preparing yourself... Uh, for cabinet meetings, mm-hmm. taking cabinet papers and being prepared to argue uh, them through at, uh, at the cabinet table, mm-hmm. uh, but also doing your homework in preparation for cabinet meetings mm-hmm. uh, was... Um, there was no point in going there if you hadn't done your homework, was there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the same with select committee work. I enjoyed select committee work, and it pains me a bit that there's not more attention paid 
at then and and now to the work of the select committees because that's where the real work of Parliament is mm. done after the legislation is agreed upon and comes back for public scrutiny. Mm. And you see, that was one of the real uh, innovation, not so much an innovation, but one of the contributions which Geoffrey Palmer made to ensure that every item of legislation other than that which was passed on budget night under under urgency always went to a select committee for public scrutiny. Hmm. And I would say on that basis in New Zealand, we've got probably one of the most open democracies anywhere in the world. Hmm. It's an interesting comment because I mentioned before we started recording, I just interviewed the Honorable Poto Williams. Yes. And one of her comments is in the first year of being a member of parliament, she tried to attend as many uh, select committees as possible just to absorb and listen and watch the process of how law is created. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, I let it be known uh, when they were putting people into select committees mm. in 84, mm -hmm. look, don't put me into education and science. I can cope with whatever comes up in both of those areas uh, with a bit of homework. Put me somewhere where I'm going to have to do some learning. Mm. And so I, I was put into uh, transport and road safety. Mm. Sorry, broadcasting transport and road safety. Right. Mm. I get the sense that during your life, and it's reflected in the fact that we're sitting here and there's probably hundreds or thousands of books around us, that education and the continual learning has been a really big theme. Absolutely. I'm never without a book. As I say, I've got a, a book in the study, a mm -hmm. book in the dining room, and a book by my bed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, I'd love to talk a little bit about um, after being a member of parliament. Mm. But before we do that, just the book point, would you have a favorite book? Is it possible to say that there's one that you come back to or that you enjoy more than others? No. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's the variety that you enjoy. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm, the, the one thing I would say is that I'm not a great novel reader mm -hmm. uh, and I can't be bothered with uh, sort of trivia. Mm -hmm. Historical novels, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, biographical novels, yes, mm -hmm. uh, but I want to be informed. Right. Mm. So you want to learn something I as do. you're reading. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's great. Mm. Well, um, so just talk us through, since you, you left Parliament then in the mid-1990s, so 1996, it sounds like, mm -hmm. what, what came next? Because one of the things I'm really curious about is the fact that when I arrived today, you said, oh, I've just been on a Zoom call with this organization. I was at this meeting over here. There may be a phone call while we're talking. You're clearly very active still. Mm -hmm. um, so I just would love to know what, what did you get involved in sort of in the years after? And what is it that keeps you motivated to be so involved in so many mm -hmm. different things? Music and the arts was clearly mm -hmm. uh, a, a, an important part of my life. More so because... My eldest daughter, Faith, got a scholarship to go to the Royal College of Music and eventually became a professional musician playing the viola in orchestras, uh, including the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra. Uh, uh, Nicola uh, went into the sciences, became a, a doctor, specialised in paediatrics, and she is now the uh, clinical director of the 
neonatal unit at the hospital, but she also played the viola mm. and still plays in the doctor's orchestra mm. uh, and also the resonance orchestra here in Christchurch. Uh, Martin, the only son, did veterinary. He never got really got round to practising as a vet, but uh, it's always been associated with uh, uh, plants or animals, and now he's into wood. <laughs> <laughs> but on that basis... On leaving Parliament, I thought I'll simply devote myself to whatever comes up that is both challenging and interesting in the arts, in the sciences, and to a lesser extent in health. And those opportunities came up, and I've been extraordinarily privileged to be able to be involved in projects. And is that a moment that you remember consciously thinking as you walked out the door or something, right, I'm going to take these opportunities? Or how uh, did that come about? I, I, no, I, I, it, it wasn't that there were any opportunities sort of sitting around there. Yeah. But uh, it was those three areas that uh, I, I felt they were the ones that I wanted to engage in when mm. the opportunities arose. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you was, had the attitude to be open to those. Mm, yeah. Mm. I, I was invited to take on being a on the council of, of uh, a tertiary institution and because I'd been involved with Lincoln for a very, very long time. And one of my other mentors, mm -hmm. and there's a book up here, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, the director of Lincoln in the very early 50s when I was a student was Eric Hudson, mm -hmm. and he was an extraordinarily important mentor. Mm -hmm. What was it that made him so important? He would raise any sort of issue with you and talk to you about what he was reading and introduce you to mm. literature. And you see, what he gave me a few days before he died was Lawrence's Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Hmm. And you asked me about a favorite book. I suppose that would be one of them. That might be it, right? Mm. Interesting. Yes, yes. Where was I? Getting lost in my own thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm just curious in terms of those opportunities. It sounds like if something comes as an opportunity that you have the attitude to say, mm. yes, I can do this. Yes. I was asked to chair the community board for Pegasus Health, and that was very um, stimulating. And I, I believe we gave quite significant advice to the Pegasus board from time to time. Mm. Uh, I enjoyed being uh, on the Lincoln Council and was eventually Chancellor for, for what, five or six years. Mm -hmm. uh, I was invited to to chair the commission, the National Commission for UNESCO, uh, and that was that led into more than ten years of extraordinary satisfaction, mm. both with the National Commission here in New Zealand, but also with Mr. Matsura as the Director General. He was concerned that national commissions in Paris were not getting the recognition that they ought. And three of us, the chair of um, Iceland, Canada and New Zealand, were invited to put together a proposal for a national commissions group that mm. would be in an, in an advisory capacity to the director general. Mm. I served as president of National Commissions Worldwide for four years. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that was extraordinarily satisfying. Yeah. And then when, when my term of office mm. uh, concluded, I said to him, now, we can't, uh, I can't go on being 
chair of National Commissions Worldwide if I'm no longer a chair. So he invited me to be his consultant in Asia and the Pacific. (laughs) (laughs) And that led me to uh, run seminar, week-long seminars in various parts of Asia and the Pacific Mm. uh, to get National Commissions up to date in their thinking. Hmm. And then he would invite me back to the general conference every second year and put me in charge of making sure that the Pacific nations uh, knew where to go and what to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was most, most satisfying. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, how one door opening will lead to another pathway. Yes. But that you have to on. ask the question mm-hmm. why is it that New Zealanders are highly respected? I'm not talking about myself, I'm talking about us. Mm. In, the, in those international arenas. And do you know why? I would love to hear your answer. We don't sit around waiting for people to come and talk to us. Mm-hmm. We go and introduce ourselves and open up the conversation and raise the issues. Mm-hmm. And you seldom see that. Mm-hmm. But also, I think we are open. And there is one thing that impresses on you right at the start of your time uh, at a general conference, Mm. you look around the room and you cannot help but conclude that to be Caucasian in this world is to be very much a minority, Mm. very much a minority. And if you look at the photographs on the top of the bookshelf there, Mm -hmm. you'll find my friends. Mm. It's wonderful. I wish I'll take a photo maybe and put it in the show notes so people can (laughs) see there's There's many photos here. (laughs) That's really wonderful. I'd love to turn the conversation slightly in that we both know Rob Lawrence. And I actually interviewed him for the podcast because he just turned 70. Uh And so he's just retired from his role. That episode is about number 189 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I noticed uh, because I was connecting with you on LinkedIn and you had made a comment to Rob about how... This is the start of something new. Can you just talk us through, um, I guess, your advice for people and your thinking behind that comment that you had for him? I've always believed that doors continue to open for you and you have to go, if you, you have to walk through them. But the recent lockdown made me realize that there's no such thing as retirement. It's simply another career opens up for you. But the important thing for me has been that that, well, fourth career, I suppose, was giving back for all the privileges that you've had. Even when I was acting as consultant for the uh, Director General in, in Asia and the Pacific, I said to him, now look, I do not, he wanted to give me a salary to do it. And I said, no, no, no. This is my opportunity to give back for all of the experiences that I've had. All that I ask for is that you cover the airfares and the the hotel bill. Hmm. And there was one occasion when I was doing one of these week-long seminars, and they put me into this hotel with my own butler (laughs) (laughs) and uh, a kitchen when it was a perfectly good Uh, cafe downstairs so I wrote to Matsura and said there's no way the per diem's going to cover this place and he wrote back to me saying forget it Margaret they did the same to me (laughs) (laughs) but um, that has been the key 
to the satisfactions I've had, that everything that I've taken on has been contributing, as required to by Percival back in the 50s, right, yes. to contribute to this country. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, it's mm. a wonderful legacy to continue to be involved in so many initiatives. Mm. I think it strikes a chord for me because I've read some um, things about the first half of life that we're very, very focused on what does our CV say? Yeah. You know, I yes. got this degree and I can use this particular program and I'm a, I did my education in this and you should give me a job. You know, this, this is why, uh, what I'm focused on. Mm. Whereas the second half of life, sometimes people call it a midlife crisis, but there can be a, a shifting of focus mm. to what could be called sort of eulogy virtues. What will people remember about you uh, afterwards? You know, that, that, what gets remembered yeah. is this was a person who contributed, who was a mentor, who was kind. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about things as mm. well. And it also brings you to the point where you don't dwell on it, but you're born, you live, and you die. And what do I want? All I want is to be remembered for having lived. Mm. Don't mourn me. She lived. Mm. That's good. <laughs> yeah. And when you look back at your life, if you could go back in time <laughs> to your 1951 self, is there any key advice that you would give to yourself? Or do you think that you kind of learned it on the way and, and you needed to know what oh, you Oh, know? you develop along the way. There's no point in recriminations or thinking, I could have done that, I could have done that. Mm. You use the opportunities as they arose. Mm. And the focus for you now, um, what are some of the projects that you're involved in? <laughs> They're all on the desks over there. <laughs> right, I see lots of papers there. Yes. Well, um, I just want to give people a sense of the fact that you contributed through your life and yet you're still involved, you're mm -hmm. still contributing. Well, the things that are uppermost in my mind at the moment, I'm president of the Civic Music Council. It's very satisfying, and I've got a group of people who are totally committed. Uh, and we've got um, 50 affiliates for, of music groups around the city, and, mm. well, North Canterbury as well. There's, a, there's huge satisfaction in engaging uh, with them. And I was at Knox Church on, on uh, Saturday night uh, for, the, for Daniel Cooper's uh, group, uh, ensemble that entertained us and it was just delightful uh, you go uh, went to the city choir in the transitional cathedral a couple of weeks ago uh, we've got NZSO coming up, the ballet etc mm -hmm. uh, and, and chamber music and they just well, they keep you alive. Mm. But the Civic Music Council and the concerto competition and also the Strum, Strike and Blow, which last year we had roughly 1,400 youngsters in the Horncastle Arena mm. from 47 schools playing marimbas, ukuleles and recorders and an audience of 3,000 <laughs> absolutely <laughs> mesmerised. <laughs> and it was just sheer joy to mm. have all those children, primary age children, playing their hearts out. Mm -hmm. mm. That's wonderful. Yeah. And I've got Antarctic Science, which uh, has been an ongoing project, but great satisfaction from uh, the Starlight Initiative uh, and uh, 
the Mackenzie being awarded a, so that's a, yet a another, gold star reserve. That's another project, isn't mm, it, mm, apart from mm. the Antarctica? But you yeah. see, that was that arose uh, when Graham Murray and Hide, uh they started to think about it. They their their focus was on the potential for world heritage status, mm -hmm. and they knew that I was involved in UNESCO, so that's how I was drawn into that. And it's been enormously satisfying. Mm. But in the end, we went for um, International Dark Sky Association mm -hmm. uh, and were awarded gold status with, with them. Mm. Well, it is stunningly beautiful there. Oh. We were in Tekapo about a month ago, actually, mm -hmm. and going out at night and looking up and just seeing so many stars. Oh, yes, yeah, just stunning. magic, just magic. Yeah. I'm very uh, interested in the Chris, Chris Ruth Centre, which looks after people over the age of 21 who have got profound intellectual and, and physical disabilities mm. and the work they do in providing them with care and entertainment and learning opportunities is quite, it's inspirational. Mm. Uh, I'm the patron there and also of the, well, it's now located in Burwood, but uh, the Wainoni Community Centre. Well, mm. what we'll do, we can put um, links to things in mm -hmm. the show notes. Yes. So I'll get the links for all of these different organisations and then we can put links in as a way to, that if people are interested, they can go and find out more. Uh -huh. And in terms of your plans for the future, what have you got on the boil or, or what's keeping you excited about the next um, coming times? Oh, the most important thing in one's life, you can find out how old I am by looking it up, is your health. Mm -hmm. And you can only maintain your health if you've got adequate exercise and you're making sure that you have good diet. But also, your mental health is de is dependent upon being active and engaged. Mm. And I would like to think I'll be able to do have a few more years of that. Yeah. Mm. Well, you definitely qualify for um, ticking that <laughs> box, I would say. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, well, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. I just want to thank you so much for your time and welcoming me in. And it's just lovely to interview you here looking around this room at all the books and the pictures. And mm -hmm. I've really enjoyed hearing about your childhood and back, you know, right at the early origin. You started the interview talking about how important education was. And that's really what stuck out through the whole interview is the role of education mm -hmm. and also the key role that some of these people played in mm -hmm. your life. And the way, the thing that I love hearing about from your perspective, though, is that it's ultimately about giving back at the end right. and, and paying it forward in a way for all of the things that, that you had received as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Margaret. I know for me there were many highlights, and after we'd finished recording, she said, oh, would you like a glass of wine? So it was really great to continue the conversation with her after we'd finished recording. I found her life and her life story an example of giving back to the community to be really inspiring. If you did as well, then why not share this with other people who might not otherwise hear it? And there's lots more episodes in the back catalog, more than 200 in fact, and it's in all podcasting apps or at theseeds.nz. And I'll put some links in the show notes to different things that we talked about. Until next time! Mm -hmm.